Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We are, as Pastor Jeff said, four weeks, four sermons on each chapter in the book of Ruth. Why Ruth? Well, last November, on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, as part of our Bible reading program that many of you do, we read Ruth. And it really hit me. It was very helpful, considering the grief in Ruth and or of Naomi and what Ruth did and Boaz. I don't know, it was very, very helpful to me. And uh, if you're a parent or maybe a supervisor, one of the things you constantly do is think about those that you have responsibility for. And as a pastor, almost everything I read, everything that's going on, I'm thinking about how it might be helpful to you. And I had the thought right then, I want to preach truth. And so here we are. And so I wanted to say that to let you know the background, but also to disabuse you of any thought that there's like this super spiritual, Holy Spirit-inspired way that I pick what I'm preaching from. I think that is led by the Holy Spirit, uh, I hope. Um, that's typically how we figure out what we're preaching from, is what's been helpful to me, I hope, becomes helpful to you. And so I hope it is. So I'm going to read uh, Ruth 1, and then get some background before we go through uh, three lessons that I hope we can learn in Ruth chapter 1. So here's Ruth 1. In the days, if you're not familiar with Ruth, where Ruth is in the New Testament, or Old Testament, it's not in the New, uh, it's right after the book of Judges, before the king book, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. So uh, we're early in the Old Testament. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died as Orpah left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the con- from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for is it, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. 
And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has returned, has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. From where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's ask God's help. Heavenly Father, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Ruth, as we see, occurred during the time of Judges, and it was a time of famine. Famine in the Bible is often part of God's discipline of his people, and if you know anything about the book of Judges, you know how well-deserving God's people were for discipline. It is said at the end of the book of Judges that everybody was just doing whatever was right in their own eyes. We live in a day like that, don't we? We don't know who the author of Ruth is. Some Jewish sources attribute it to Samuel, but we really have no idea. And uh, so we won't try to postulate. Uh, Whoever wrote Ruth, though, was an excellent writer. One of the reasons we say that is because it is just beautiful, this book, and how it's written. But most stories in which there's no villain in which all of the characters basically are okay, they're good. There's no really evil shown in it. And that it all ends well, honestly, is often boring. Except around Christmas. This would be a difficult book to write without a villain. There's no antagonist. All of the other characters are pretty good and it all ends well. And so the skill of this writer in writing a story like that is incredible because it's a very compelling story. Not sinless, of course. And so, what's Ruth about? Well, you saw in Pastor Jeff, so I won't belabor that, but let me kind of give you some of the themes. Of course, one of the main themes is this utter loyalty and love of one of the characters that we met. We just saw Ruth. And then next week we'll meet Boaz. There is a word in Hebrew that describes a certain kind of love, a committed love, a loyal love, a very faithful love no matter what, Hesed. And that's what's on display in this book, in the character of Ruth, in the person of Ruth, and then in Boaz. And they're each contrasted, Ruth with Orpah, and Boaz with an unnamed other man who was a relative of Naomi that could have taken care of them. And so you're going to, I think, be convicted, challenged, encouraged to 
set before you the example of these two faithful, loyal, committed, devoted folks in your marriage or in your response to your parents or with friendships or at the church with your pastors and elders and being devoted to them just because you're devoted to them. That's what God's like, isn't he? And then we also can learn a lot about grief. I think that's one of the compelling reasons why I wanted to preach it. There's a lot of people in our church in depths of sorrows. Don't see a way out. So hopefully we can be helped there. And then in the midst of the grief, we see having kind of the perspective of the narrator and having familiarity with the book that, well, Naomi returns and says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because I'm bitterness the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and now I'm empty. She has no hope that we see in her despair how God has already been working and is planning their redemption, their care. And then through it all, God is bringing from this line uh, between Boaz and Ruth, David, King David. And so we get this vantage point by seeing the suffering another, how God is already at work fulfilling his eternal plan, both for their security and their uh, betterment and the bringing of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see the great wisdom of God, the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God all together. We see Romans 8.28, all things work together for the good of those who love, called according to God's purpose. We see that in living color here. And so hopefully you begin to learn like, I can trust God. That's one of the themes here. We see the manliness of Boaz. Okay, if this, if, if God help us, if Disney got a hold of the rights to Ruth and made a movie, you know what they would do? What would they do? Let me think if you can guess. What would they do? Who would be the hero? It wouldn't be Boaz. He'd be a pathetic chump. It would be a woman. Because there's no good men anymore, right, in the world? You can't trust men. But here we have a man, Boaz, a man. He's not sexually immoral. He protects the purity of the woman. He doesn't flout cultural norms. He has to follow the orderliness of his society. He, he's not a rebel. He's a good man. He's a decent man. He's an orderly man. He's a pure man. He's a hardworking man. And he's a man who will protect the innocent and care for them. So we can learn a lot about that. And as I just said, the main thing that Ruth is about, if you turn to the end of the book, it ends inspiringly with a genealogy. <laughs> the, the book of Ruth, the main purpose of it is to show where David came from. To show where King David came from. That he has this very unexpected ancestry of a Moabite woman married to this Bethlehemite, this man from Bethlehem, Boaz, and that King David then would come from that very unexpected lineage. And of course then, the only other place that we meet Boaz in the Bible, do you know where? Right? In the genealogies of, Je of Jesus at the beginning of Matthew and Luke. So this is a book about Jesus and where he came from, that he's man, that he's the line of David, and that there's already Gentiles in his ancestry, and so the gospel is going to be for all. And so that's what this book is going to be about. All right, so let's look at chapter 1. Again, Pastor Jeff uh, summarized it, so I don't want to 
go through that all. But just simply to say, it couldn't be any worse for Ruth and Naomi. For Naomi particularly. She suffers the loss of her husband, after which her sons marry. So just put yourself there, okay? You leave home, immigrant, forced from your homeland, from your people because of starvation. I mean, our country maybe doesn't know something about that, but our country has been the recipient of those. If you were alive in Vietnam, we had a whole bunch of Hmong refugees who had to flee taking the U.S. side from their native land and landed, many of them, in Wausau. And now, of course, we have Afghan refugees and uh, Ukrainian refugees. So they've lost everything. There's nothing left. And so they have to leave their land and they go to a foreign land in order to just eat. And while they're there, her husband dies. But thank God she has two sons. And they marry. And so there's some hope in her grief, right? There's some love, some family, her sons and her new daughters-in-law. You know? And so you have this sorrow, but there's help. And then there isn't. The two sons die. Ten years. We don't know the exact timing, but sometime after her husband died, her son's married, and sometimes after that, at least years later, the whole thing is happening in ten years, her sons die. And so grief upon grief, sorrow upon sorrow. And then she's got to return home. She, they were never intended to become Moabites. They're Israelites. They're God's people. They're going to return home. And she hears that there's food. And then her daughters-in-law, what does she do there? Because if her daughters-in-law stayed with her, they're committing to remain unmarried. They would have to marry one of her sons and she's not married and she's old. And So here's Naomi faced with this proposition. I need these women. I depend on them, even for life, but companionship. They're my daughters. And yet if I hold on to them, their lives are going to be very difficult. And so she does this very godly thing of saying, just go back to your Homes, go back to your land. There's no hope for you with me. Now, maybe she said that in the depths of her sorrow, but I think here she's being very selfless. Some of you know people or have had moms who hold on tight to their sons and they don't ever let their sons become men and don't let their sons establish their own household. They always got to have a hold. Naomi's not like that. And so I don't, I don't think we should think less of Orpah I think Orpah is something of a contrast to Ruth, but Orpah is just doing what her mother-in-law said. I don't think she's evil here. Orpah leaves and Ruth, of course, clings. And then they return, and of course they return, you know, with much sorrow and grief and really no hope. And uh, draw your attention to a few things now by way of hopefully challenging you. The first is this loyal love this Hebrew word hesed, that we don't necessarily have a perfect English equivalent to, but I think we get it. There's a kind of love that's committed. Maybe the best way to get a handle for this is marriage, vows. Now, unfortunately, our culture has no-fault divorce, where vows mean nothing, and the state no longer holds you to them. 
And the church, unfortunately, does the same. I was telling some people last night that in, um, in my experience in churches, I've seen people leave the church and then leave their marriages and they go to another church and I go to the other church and I say, hey, this husband, this wife just abandoned their marriage and their kids. Can you help? Can you like help me at least encourage them to go back to their marriage? I think you should discipline them. I, I, and they won't. They refuse to do anything. And then that divorced person and their circle of relationships encourages the other people to divorce. And this is the state of our, there's no loyalty. There's no commitment to vows. This is the most important thing about your marriage, right? I do. Sickness and health, rich or poor, better or worse, till death does part us. And our culture says, doesn't mean anything. I don't let people write their own vows when we come to marriage. Do you know why? Because it's not their vows. It's not create your own. They're given to you to, to say I do to and to keep. And we see that kind of love. That's love. Do you know that? Keeping your vows. Love isn't a fluffy feeling. Love isn't a, oh. Love is, I vowed. Better or worse, rich or poor, sickness and health, to love and to cherish till death does part us. And love is, I'm keeping that. Lovelessness is, I don't love you anymore. I don't, I'm not faithful to my word. I'm not faithful to you. I'm tired of you. And Ruth and Boaz provide us what Christian love, covenant love, oath-keeping love, promise-making and promise-keeping loyal, committed love is. It's the love of Christ for his people. It's the love of God in covenanting with his people that even their sin won't separate him from us, but he'll make payment for our sin in sending his son. It's God making promises and keeping them. That's what we're going to see in Ruth and in Boaz. It's it's a virtue in a land that no longer considers it a virtue. We'll see it in baptism. One of the declarations in baptism is that they commit to following Jesus. And how many people break that commitment? Or at least hold it very loosely. It doesn't mean anything. So how is your commitment to others? Are you flaky? Do you have loyalty and commitment to those that God has placed in your life, in your marriage, for your parents? Kids, the worst thing you can ever do is talk down about your parents with other kids. That's very disloyal. It's terrible. Awful. Have you no virtue? Have you no commitment and loyalty? Same thing in friendships. Same thing with our country. Same thing with your church and your pastors and your elders and same thing at work. So how is your commitment? Of course, we love because he first loved us, right? We love committedly, loyally, because that's how God has loved us in Christ. You know, God promised to remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. God promised that he would make our sins as if they're no more. And he's just. And so 
He didn't do that by just going, I don't care. He did it by justly pouring out his wrath on his own son who was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. So God showed us loyal love because he promised it. And so we, as Christians, that's what we are to become. And so how's your loyalty? We change churches like we change underwear. We're committed until we decide we don't want to be committed anymore. That's our world. We should be different. So hopefully Ruth and Boaz will be helped to you. But this is in the context of great sorrow. So notice the sorrow of Naomi. Naomi. Naomi is how pretentious people say Naomi. Naomi. Naomi will do. She's full of sorrow. Just listen to what she said here. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me empty. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Sorrow. Grief. This is our life in sin. Man was born to misery as the sparks fly upward. I wonder if you're okay being sorrowful. I wonder if you have the faith to do it. I wonder if you're okay with others' sorrow. I don't mean it's comfortable. It's awful. And I don't mean like the woe is me, like kind of selfishly getting people to show you some care by telling them how bad you have it. I mean like real grief and sorrow and pain. Psalm 13.2, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Psalm 31.10, My life is spent in sorrow. My years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity. My bones waste away. Psalm 88.9, My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread my hands to you. And so here's a woman in sorrow. This is one of the things that I love about Scripture. Like It's honest with us about our misery. It teaches us how to be full of misery and pain. Now, some of that is due, as we said before, to your own folly. Your pain and your sorrow are a direct result of the sinful decisions you've made. You've decided to do what's right in your own eyes, have neglected the wisdom and truth of God's Word, And so you're suffering for it. And you know what the rest of us should have for you? Pity and mercy and patience. No pride. No thought of, oh, I'm glad I'm not like him or her. Just pity. Mercy. Hopefully calling them back to repentance, to true godly sorrow. Then some of you are suffering through no fault of your own. You just live in a world of pain and misery. And you're in it. Loss of husband, like we saw from Sandy. I saw Sandy weep. And still, right? It's still, isn't it? year and a half later. And that's good. It's a hard work. I've seen such faith in Sandy in her tears. She's willing to grieve. Some of you have lost children. It's sorrowful. It should be. It's painful. Have the faith to go through it. Have the faith to endure it. Some of you have been abused, neglected, treated awfully by others, come into financial hardship, been abandoned in relationship. And the Bible teaches us how to do this. Turn to 
Lamentations chapter 3. I thought one obscure book in the Bible wasn't enough. Let's, let's do a second. Lamentations is after Jeremiah. So you have kind of Psalms and then a little bit later Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. And in Lamentations chapter 3, so Lamentations are the grief and sorrow of Jeremiah, the shepherd of Israel, over God's discipline on his people. Very closely connected with what we see in Ruth. So he's lamenting. He's full of sorrow and pain and grief over the sufferings of God's people. So for the first of chapter 3, the first 21 verses, in fact, the first two chapters and 21 verses of chapter 3 are just all lament, all sorrow. Look at verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the wrath, under the rod of his wrath. I am a man of constant sorrows. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Isn't that a good description of sorrow, of grief? It's just, there's just nothing but this sorrow. It overwhelms. Verse 4, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. Verse 7, he has walled me about so that I cannot escape. Verse 15, he has filled me with bitterness, sated me with wormwood. Verse 17, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Verse 18, my endurance is perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Sorrow, grief. Then verse 21, but this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope, the steadfast love, the hesed of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This is how the godly suffer. This is how his saints suffer. They don't deny the reality of their pain. They say it here in poetic verse and music almost. I have no hope. It's all darkness. It's all pain. It's a walled room. I can't get out. It's not psychologized. It's not cheapened. It's just darkness. Then he calls something to mind. He does the work of faith. This I call the mind. This I am diligent to work to come under the truth of God's word. God is faithful. His mercies never end. They will come again. There is resurrection. He is my portion. This is one of the good gifts of suffering if you have the faith to accept it. You are left with nothing but God. And that is good for us. Is that true? All right. One of the things we look for when we're looking for church leaders, have they had their teeth kicked in? You know, have they suffered? Have they been tested? Have they taken many punches and blows? Because they'll know how to sympathize with people. That's their life. There's, there's, no, I mean, there's pride, but there's no pride. God is doing good. So have faith to grieve. Use the Bible and those in grief to teach you how to do it. Some of your lives, I don't mean this negatively, like some of your lives are just all grief. You've known mainly grief, loss, betrayal, harshness, meanness, aloneness. And the thing that you shouldn't do with that is just get bitter. 
you shouldn't use that as an excuse to be useless and angry because you're only eating poison. Like you're, you're only decaying your soul. The thing to do with it is go to Ruth, go to Ecclesia, or, uh, Lamentations 3, go to the Psalms and learn how to grieve. Learn how to look at God and scream. And then learn how to tell yourself, God is good. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies endure forever. They are made new every morning. How does it end? Huh? Great is your faithfulness. Because joy comes in the morning, right? Look at the last verse of chapter 1 of Ruth. There's a glimmer there, isn't it? You see it? And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest. There's just, it's spring. It's, there's the first 60 degree sunny day. There looks like there's some hope coming. That's what God does. He does humble us. Sometimes his hand is heavy on us. Sometimes his providence is hard. But then there's a, there's a harvest right there. The fields are ripening. And of course, what's our greatest hope? It's resurrection from the dead. It is what we celebrated last week. It is, brothers and sisters, that you will die if you have Christ and go to be with the Lord. That's our help and sorrow for those that we have lost who love Christ. That they are with the Lord. And that these bodies will be raised imperishable, incorruptible. But it's also true in our lives here. Weeping may last for the night, but joy is coming. That's how this miserable chapter ends. And so have hope. Be humble. You are clay. He is the potter. He has absolute rights to do with you as he wills. But our potter is good. He's wise. He's right. He didn't spare his only son. And so you must do the work of grieving and fighting to see him as good and merciful and wise and just and the raiser of the dead. Let's pray. Father, help us in all of our griefs and sorrows, in all of our losses to not be embittered, to not blame and become just full of anger and resigning ourselves that You are not good. Maybe you're not even God. And so, God, instead, help us to turn and humble cries, please, for help. Give us hope to see the goodness of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Give us hope to know that though weeping does last for a long, dark evening, there is a morning. Though winter is long and the snow is deep and the skies are gray, spring is coming. And so teach us, God, to hope in you. And teach us how to be helpful to others. To not push them, to deny their grief, to think less of them in their grief, but to be with them. To maybe even just be quiet with them. To do the little things we can, to be a help to them. To not tell them our miserable stories only, but to just care for them. And so, God, give us wisdom as caregivers of each other. Use us for help there. God, we praise you that you are our God, that your steadfast love never ceases, that you are faithful and keep all of your promises and teach us to be likewise. 
We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the charge is this. Uh, so please receive this well. You do need to get hold of yourself and your grief. You do need to have the faith to tell, to hear the preaching of his word that he is good, that he is wise, that he is our redeemer. And so, you know, like do the hard work of, of you know, taking yourself in hand and believing the truth that he is the God who raises the dead. And he is our God, right? And so, you know, do that work. I didn't write out a benediction. And so I'm not really sure what to do here, but um, here, we'll do Hebrews. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the cove, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. I love you. Have a great week in the Lord.